Well, this morning we continue our series called Sin No More, a series that we feel that was necessary to introduce again to our congregation due to the reality that sin today is almost negated by our society. And what do I mean by that? Nothing really is sin. Uh, nothing really constitutes moral failure any longer in our society in many respects. There are some aspects and boundaries that still have not yet been crossed, but it's only a matter of time that those boundaries themselves will be challenged. After a while, it is possible for a Christian to start to become desensitized to the seriousness of sin in their own life and in the Christian community. And as we are addressing this issue through this series, we began with John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we've read it several times already, so I'll sum it for you this morning. In John chapter 8, we have a picture given to us where sin is at the center of the stage. And the question is, what shall we do in the face of sin? How shall we react? What shall we do? What is the goal and the objective at that moment for the person who has been caught in the act of sin? In John chapter 8, we find a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. She is brought before Jesus Christ there as he is in the temple teaching. So we have a group of people with Jesus in the temple, and the religious leaders find this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. The man is absent from the equation. He too should have been brought there. And she is brought to Jesus, and the question therefore becomes an issue of political means or agenda. This woman, Jesus, has been caught in the act of adultery. What shall we do with her? And of course, John gives us the insight to tell us that they said these things to him to test him, to see what he would do. As they approached him, they reiterated the fact that Moses says this woman should be stoned, and that's what the law said. But that's the letter of the law. What was the spirit of the law? In their interpretation and application, there was no room for repentance or restoration. And Jesus famously then begins to write in the ground. And we don't know exactly what he wrote, but it was enough to give everyone a moment of pause. And then he stated, Let he who is without sin be the one to cast the first stone. And it says that they began to leave one by one, starting with the older to the younger. The older knew that they had all sinned before God. The younger, it took a little longer for it to to sink in. And then it was just Jesus and this woman left alone. Extraordinarily, he says, where are your accusers? She says, there are none. He says to her, neither do I accuse you. Go and now sin no more. Where restoration didn't look possible, Jesus made it possible through forgiveness, knowing that just a week in time later, he would be going to the cross and the sins of that woman would be placed on his shoulders for the means of atonement. As we witnessed the religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus, we asked ourselves the question last week, today in our time, what is the church's responsibility when it comes to addressing sin amongst the people? Now, many may believe that this is solely a responsibility that God has. 
that the church itself should play no role in that process whatsoever. But is that biblical? I know many pastors who would like to believe that it is, but it's not. The Bible calls the church to a process of biblical discipline, which is known as church discipline, in very specific cases where it must be applied. One wrote and he said, I am convinced that biblical discipline process properly observed would utterly revitalize the church in our generation. That's a big statement. Can he substantiate that statement? At the core of that statement, I find that it is necessary for elders and congregants alike to see sin seriously in their Christian walk. To look at it objectively and not to try to justify it in their own minds and their own hearts and therefore alleviating themselves of the conviction that it may create. It's important that we look at it straight on through the lens of Scripture and see sin as God sees sin. And how serious was sin? It required the sacrifice of His only begotten Son to overcome it. That's huge. That's something we just can't take lightly. We must take it seriously if we're going to truly appreciate all that Christ has done for us. Does this mean that we don't believe of the work of grace in the person's life? I hope that every person knows here in this church we are a strong proponent of the grace of God. How could we not be? In fact, I was speaking at a conference once and I was introduced by my pastor and his assistant and they introduced me as Pastor Eric, the epitome of the grace of God. I thought that was a compliment until I looked up the word epitome. Then I realize it's like, well, God's grace got him back there. We don't know what else could have, you know. We are absolutely strong proponents of the grace of God. We must never lose sight of the grace of God. It's the grace of God that gets us past our sin. But there are truly great objections today concerning church discipline, and in some regards, rightfully so. We all know that at one time or another we have heard or read a story or been confronted with the reality of church discipline gone awry. Where it has been applied in a manner where the elders simply want to control people. That is not the purpose of church discipline. Church discipline is not there to simply show the elder's authority over the congregation and that anyone who disagrees with an elder for any reason is then excommunicated because of that disagreement. That's not what church discipline is in place to provide. It is given to the church to deal with individuals who are living in a rebellious state of sin. A process has worked itself through where an individual has gone to them, two have gone to them, they've been brought before the church, and in all three occasions they choose not to repent and rebelliously flaunt that sin before others. At that point, the church has no 
option but to ask that individual to leave. And those are the biblical examples that we are given straight out, meaning that we have as text to show us that this should be the process in which is exercised. But after the gentleman stated that he believed that church discipline reapplied today in a proper way in the church would revitalize the church, he therefore then offered a letter that was opposed to that idea. A letter that many of you may relate to. And I'd like to read this paragraph of this letter that this woman sent to him because it does reflect the mindset of many today when it comes to church discipline. This is what she writes. Listen with me. The whole process of church discipline sounds incredibly controlling and uncharitable. I cannot believe that any church would ever threaten to excommunicate its own members for what they do in their private lives. I cannot imagine a church making a public pronouncement about someone's sin. What people do on their own time is their own business, not the whole church's. And the church is supposed to be where people can come to learn and to overcome sin. How can they do that if they've been excommunicated? If we shun our own members, we're no better than the cults. I cannot imagine that Christ would ever excommunicate someone from his church. Didn't he seek out the sinners and avoid those who were holier than thou? After all, it's not the people who are whole that need a physician. It is the people who are sick. I'm glad my church doesn't excommunicate members who sin. There'd be none of us left. I thought the gospel was all about forgiveness. Now, as you read that letter, you certainly see quickly her misunderstanding of church discipline. We are not talking about someone who's struggling with an area of their flesh, who seeks God daily to overcome that area of their flesh, who have maybe come to the elders and asked for prayer because that area of the flesh is like a Goliath in their life that they just cannot overcome. We are not addressing a person as such. We all struggle with something. We all do. Again, we're talking about an individual who is staunchly in rebellion against the Word of God, the elders' administration, the congregants' collective understanding, someone who basically states, I don't care what the Bible says, I am not going to repent. I'm going to continue on doing what I am doing because I want to do what I want to do. That's a different case altogether, isn't it? Different hard attitude. Now, how important is discipline in a person's life? Last week I stated that concerning my father, I feel that I am so grateful that my father was a fair, consistent disciplinarian. I believe that it has helped form the character of the man that I am today. Even at that time, he wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. His discipline helped create in me a character that I don't think I would have necessarily obtained unless he would have been consistent with his discipline. How many of you as parents today realize how important discipline is in the raising of your own child? 
Do we have examples in the world today of children who probably required more discipline than they actually received? Have you been to Walmart? <laughs> Look, I don't even have to say anything further. You already start laughing. And you go in there for a couple items and you get behind the checkout line where the kid has the meltdown because he can't or she can't have the Pez and just starts screaming at the top of her lungs and starts waving their hands and floundering all over the cart and mom and dad goes, oh, okay, just stop and gives them what they want. You just say to yourself, there is the creation of a monster in the works. Or you're at the restaurant and the kid's throwing the food across the restaurant and you're sitting there with your wife or your husband and you're just enjoying it and all of a sudden you get a piece of macaroni stuck to the side of your face and the parent doesn't say anything. Oh, this is she cute? No, she's really not. No, not cute at all. Big piece of macaroni and cheese stuck to the side of your face, you know. No, it's not cute. Not cute at all. Give me that kid for a minute. We'll work it out. I think all of us in this room would agree that next to Jesus, the wisest person that ever lived was Solomon, correct? Solomon gave us a book called the Proverbs with verses on wisdom, the application of knowledge and how that knowledge should be applied, right? Let's take a little walk through the Proverbs together. First of all, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. This is from the wisest man who ever lived next to Christ. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. How about Proverbs 5.22-23? I hope we got it there. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. But my personal favorite is found in Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. It's from the wisest man who ever lived. We should cherish discipline, especially at the hand of the Lord. And if our elders are properly exercising their office, we should appreciate the correction that an elder may bring to us for our betterment. And what we've been doing for the last two weeks, last week we looked at the necessity and the purpose of church discipline. Today we look at the reason and the method. Why is church discipline necessary? Simple. Because the Word of God commands it. There's no doubt of that. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, we get a clear instruction by Jesus on the process, the four-step process of church discipline. In 1 Corinthians 5, by Paul, we again get the command of Scripture that church discipline is needed. I won't go over these points again, but it is clear from both of these passages that the inevitable conclusion that we must take away as a church is that church discipline is necessary under certain circumstances and must be enacted by the elders when needed. When needed. Again, we've read those 
text in their entirety. We'll look at them more in just a moment. But we also resolve not only the necessity of church discipline, but the purpose of church discipline last week also. What's the purpose of it? It's threefold. Number one, to restore and to reconcile the sinner back to God. Again, in our example of John chapter 8, the religious leaders had no intention. They wanted to see this woman dead, and we established why that was when we looked at them more closely in our session concerning them. And number two, to maintain church purity. One who is living in constant rebellion to God in an area of their life or several areas of their life is going to affect others within that church body. It's inevitable. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And number three, to serve as a deterrent from sin. That others may learn from the life lessons that is found within it. So today we wrestle with the reasons for it, meaning what sins, if any specific sins, would warrant such a reaction. We're going to find three specific ones. But Jesus, in Matthew 18, which we'll look at in just a moment, gives us a general application for sin in the word in which he uses. Turn there with me to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to look at this together. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, there's that generic Greek word for sin. Violated a moral law of God somehow, some way against another individual. The first command or instruction by Jesus is to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen Take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established. We're going to look at these steps closer in just a moment, but I want to read the text to you to familiarize yourself with it once again. And by evidence of the two or three witnesses, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done from them by our Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It is clear that Jesus himself stated that it may be necessary to separate one from us. If you turn with me, as we looked at the general, there may be a general reason that this person chooses not to repent and to get right with God. There's also a more specific one found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you turn there with me also. Listen to these words by Paul. It is actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the emphasis here, and of a kind that is not even tolerated even amongst the pagans. There is something going on here that isn't right. First of all, there's, it's sexual immorality, and that shouldn't be amongst you at all, and let alone in the form that it is, it's something that's not even tolerable amongst the pagans, and they tolerated almost everything. And what was the issue? Look with me. 
A man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? And let him who has done this be removed from among you. And now we get to the more specific. And the first of these more specific ones appears to be sexually immoral people. Individuals who refuse to cease sexual activity prior to formal marriage. And when we state marriage, please let me clarify what I mean by that. We believe that marriage is a constitution between a man and a woman before God. Only in that context should sexual activity take place. Before that, before you say I do, I personally don't even think you should ride to the movies in the same car together. That you should go Dutch on everything. So there's no obligation. Because remember, everything starts with a kiss, doesn't it? Usually where things start. They usually go downhill fast after that. Now I'm being facetious, but there's also a kernel of truth in that also. Let's be very careful. This type of sexual immorality, though, this form of some form of incest, I don't mean to be graphic, but that's what the issue was here at this church, should not be tolerated at all. This individual has to go. The church was celebrating this rather than addressing it. That has caused a lot of confusion in our nation lately, hasn't it? Churches celebrating sin rather than addressing sin. Guys, let's be clear, and I'm going to state it again. Homosexuality and lesbianism before God is sin. And marriage doesn't cleanse that fact. Marriage does not cleanse that fact. God has made it clear. And often, the secular community wants to rail on verses that are found in the Old Testament, such as Leviticus, where it talks as homosexuality is an abomination unto God, and they completely negate many of the New Testament passages where it's clearly stated as sin also. And Romans chapter 1 clearly identifies any kind of sexual activity between two of the same sex as sin before God. It's as clear as day. When we get to our teaching next week, we're going to talk about social influence on the redefinition of activity from sin to sanctification or sin to sanctity because the Bible's word cannot be changed by social acceptance. Do we understand that? But that being said... It's a sexually immoral issue that must be addressed in this way. So if we had one who is in some type of sexual relationship with another outside the context of marriage and they were approached by an individual, they were approached by two or three, they were brought to the church and they just refused to repent, that is an issue that must be dealt with. The second of the specific issues that are found in the Bible is division and discourse. 
Romans 16, 17 states, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Titus 3, 10 and 11. Titus 3, 10 and 11 states, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, having nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. For example, if we had an individual coming into the church, and they were perpetuating the idea that Jesus Christ was not God, he was just one of many gods, that would be an issue that must be contended with. If one came to us and said that the Bible is not truly in the infallible Word of God, that must be an issue that we would have to contend with. Now there's areas that we can agree to disagree and still have unity as a fellowship, correct? But there are other issues that we cannot simply state that we agree to disagree upon. If we had one coming into the church who felt that our stance on homosexuality and lesbianism was too narrow-minded, too constrictive, and they felt that Jesus was a God of love and that he was liberal in this thinking and that he loves all people and why and how is it possible that the love between two consenting adults could possibly be wrong. That is something we would have to address. Those are doctrinal issues that must be addressed if the person is unwilling to repent after being proven through the word of God that they are wrong by the elders, then they possibly may be someone, they would be a candidate for someone who may be asked to leave. But what happens when it comes to discourse? That's doctrinal division. There's also discourse. Discord is a very, very subtle sin that Satan likes to weave within congregations to divide and to separate the congregations one from another. It is a plague. It can begin between the laity, the congregation, where some start sowing discord against others in the church and you get a divided church on that level. You could have it between the laity and the elders, where you have one coming in saying, Oh, those elders, they're whack. You don't want to listen to them. They're out of their minds and so forth. And begin to weed discord, division between the people maliciously. If we as elders do something that concerns you, I hope that we have demonstrated here at Calvary Chapel, we have an open-door policy, you can come and discuss any issue with us. If we give you a reasonable biblical answer collectively as elders for our actions and you still disagree with it, then that is something that we would ask you to keep to yourself. It's not wrong to question something. It's not wrong to inquire on something. But there's a method in which you go about doing it. And there's a fine line there. And And it has been crossed too many times on both sides. 
elders overstepping their authority and uh, trying to control the populace in an unbiblical manner. And then you have the congregation trying to sow division between the elders because an individual has been hurt or wronged in some way. And therefore, they want to make sure that the whole congregation knows it, and they try to weave that discord between the elders and the laity. In both cases, unity has been dissolved, and this is sin before God. Now, again, I want to reiterate something to you. 19 years. In 19 years, I believe, Joe may correct me on this, my memory is faulting, that we had to address discord or doctrinal division one time. One time. And so, understand it in perspective. But these are some clear teachings of the Scriptures that would require the elders to get involved for the health and welfare of the congregation collectively. Does that make sense to everybody? Part of my job, part of Joe's job, part of Chris's job, part of our jobs is to oversee you and to keep a well-being amongst you. Again, wanting to leave as few fingerprints on you as possible. I'm not trying to conform you into the image of me. God forbid that. One of me is enough. Just ask Dina. Our job is the teaching of the Word of God to allow the Spirit to conform you into the image of God. But there are times that as shepherds, we have to protect from the wolves, don't we? That's part of my job. And when that job is necessary, we will do it uncompromisingly, without without any kind of hesitation, when it's warranted. So sexual immorality, discord, and doctrinal division, and the last of the three that is specifically addressed in Scripture is found in the word idleness, which really means in Paul's context, unruly or disorderly. Listen to these words by Paul, 2 Thessalonians three thirteen through 15 As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 continues. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, that is that word again, unruly, disorderly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So an individual... For example, when I was an assistant pastor at the church prior to this one, we were confronted with an individual who simply didn't want to work. He loved the verses in the Bible that stated that if you see a brother in need, you should meet that need. And so he would make his need often known to the congregants, and they would graciously, out of their love and generosity, they would help that person along. Until he created his own welfare system within our church. And he himself was unwilling to work and just simply sponged off the congregation. It came to our attention. We addressed the issue. We were yelled at by him for being uncharitable. 
We were uh, accused of being unfair because uh, they were willing to give. Why shouldn't we just let them give out of love? Uh, We were accused of robbing them from their heavenly treasures. And, um, but yet, the Bible clearly taught, shows us that he was unwilling to work, and if you don't work, you don't eat. He didn't know that verse was in the Bible. And so we had to address that issue. He was disorderly. And he was taking advantage of the generosity of the congregation. It truly kills me to see how many organizations parachurch organizations have taken advantage of the generosity of Christians. It's sad. Especially financially. And I will not tolerate an individual coming here to this church taking advantage of the generosity of you when he himself or is capable of providing for themselves. Now, by all means, help those in need, and God will bless you. God will bless you. But let us be very careful that we're not enabling someone just because we want to be compassionate towards that person. Enabling bad behavior rather than confronting it and challenging them to repent of it. Because I see us as one of the most generous churches that there is. Your generosity is overwhelming to me. And I don't want anyone to take advantage of that towards you. Because I love the gifts you give me. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Generosity is so precious. It can be very, it can be quenched very quickly by wrong behavior. This would be an example of someone who is disorderly, taking advantage of the congregation in an unbiblical fashion and therefore being confronted on it. Roy Zuck, in his letter on church discipline, wrote, Given these general and specific causes, it appears that a great extent the application of the requirement for the church discipline is up to the local church. Jesus mentioned only general courses, and the specific cases, causes referred to by Paul, do not specify as to quality, quantity, or seriousness. The local assembly is apparently given the latitude to decide when discipline is necessary. This seems right, since it is they who will know the seriousness, the frequency, frequency, and the potential hazard of the continuing offense. Meaning that the board has, the elders have the discretion on how to implement this church discipline. So what does it look like? Well, if we go back to Matthew 18, if you'll turn there with me, you'll find a four-step process that has clearly been outlined for us in this particular topic. The methodology has been spelled out for us, and it's undeniable. This is also something that you can apply in your own personal life in dealing with one another in issues of sin. If you notice the very first thing that we discover here As Jesus tells us, again, we're going back to his words specifically. In verse 15, step one is a private corrective summons. If your brother sins against you, and that's that general term again, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, 
you have gained your brother. The word tell there means, or go to him and tell him his fault, means that you go to reprove him. Reproving is a correction that is based upon proof, meaning you've done something wrong, here's where the Bible states that this is wrong, you need to fix it. That's what a reproof is. It always points to resolving the issue, reproving, to set right, to point away from sin. It implies an educative uh, discipline and a summons to repentance. It always carries a corrective goal in its implied method. It seems reasonable that Paul intended such a private correction summons when he wrote in Galatians 6.1, If a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The initial step is not to expose the sin openly, but to confront the individual gently with a view of repentance. Number one, go to that person directly. Nothing gets me going more than someone who comes to me and says, you don't know what so-and-so did against me. And if you knew it, you wouldn't like them either. Really? Why don't you go to them? Oh, no. No, I'd rather just tell you and everybody else about it. Of course, I'm painting a character, but you know what I'm speaking of those who are reluctant to go directly to the source and correct the issue. If there's an issue between two people, go to that source, number one, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. Go to them personally and privately and discuss it through this means. If that doesn't work, you go to step two, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What does that mean? Well, now you have to make it a more public matter, a more public issue. And if they're unwilling to correct the issue just on a private consultation, you take it to the first step of a public one by bringing two or three with you. Now, do these two or three have to be witnesses of the offense? Not necessarily. They could simply be two brothers or sisters in Christ who affirm the teaching of the Word of God and are coming collectively with you to substantiate the accusation. Meaning, if the, if the first go around, the first step, they throw up a wall and they say, nope, I'm not going there, I don't agree with you, so on and so forth, take two or three with them to substantiate the issue and then again and ask them, to repent. That's what he's saying here. But if that doesn't work, and Paul used this, he says, you know, if, it, if you go twice and uh, you are rejected after the second warning, then you take it to the next level. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, what does he mean by that? Some believe that the issue is to be brought out in the complete openness of the public church gathering to lay upon the shoulders of the validity of the accusation and therefore seek corrective action. 
Others believe that it's simply bringing the issue to the church elders and having the church elders then deal with the issue. Uh, Interesting. I lean towards the latter, that the issue should be brought to the elders of the church first and then have the elders with two or three witnesses go and lay a charge before them. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, we have a verse that says that to one who is sinning, bring him before all and rebuke him openly. In the context of that verse, I see that as an elder who has been caught in the act of sinning, doesn't want to repent, won't repent. He is to be, re- he is to be rebuked openly for his sin that the whole church may learn from it. So what we would ask here, that if you go to somebody once and they reject it, if they go to you, if you go to them with two or three and they reject it, then come to the church elders, and then we will intervene and bring it to a resolution. And if he refuses, which is always a possibility, if he refuses even to listen to the church, Let him too be as a Gentile and a tax collector. By Jesus stating this, he was acknowledging that at that time, Gentiles and tax collectors were considered untouchables, the outcasts of society. They are not meant to be part of what is going forward within the congregation, they are meant to be isolated. Step four is public correction. And exclusion. If the accused still does not turn from his sin, he is to be excluded from the church. And Jesus says, if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be as to you a Gentile and a tax collector. The commentator Lenski wrote, If all the brotherly efforts of the church fails, then the church must consider the sinner self-expelled and must take due note of the fact and act accordingly. This so-called band or excommunication, the man's membership to the church ceases. Luther went on one step further when he added, by his sin the sinner thus makes himself one who is not a sheep, nor wants to be sought, but intends to be completely lost. Luther had a way of saying things like that, didn't he? If they don't want to repent, then they need to move on. Now, the process should be vetted through the first three steps. The accusation should be vetted through the first three steps as being accurate, biblical, and therefore the pronouncement must be in accordance to the teaching of the Word of God. It cannot come dependent on personality or favoritism or any type of personal opinion. We have no room for those things in this process. The validity of the accusation must be established by the Word of God. Now if you turn with me, Paul said something very interesting concerning this fourth step. And the only reason I bring it to your attention is that I'm sure some of you might be inquiring, what does he mean by this? In this excommunication, or this 
invitation to leave or the command to leave, Paul said something very interesting that has troubled many, and we want to deal with it this morning just quickly. Verse 1 of chapter 5 has actually been reported that there is sexually immor- sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this been removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Now that is interesting. What is Paul referring to? Excommunication of an individual was meant to say that they once again realized that being excluded from the congregation, they were thrown back under the rule and the reign of Satan. As 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It was meant to give them a moment of pause to come to their senses. Think of it this way. The prodigal son separated, right? He went and he squandered everything that his father gave him. He ended up uh, on a farm feeding pigs. And then he finally comes to a realization, right? Separated. And in that time of separation, he came to his senses and realized that he needed to reevaluate where he was at. That's what this is meant to be. But what about the destruction of your flesh? I personally hold to Paul using this, and there are others who may disagree, that he was referring to that which Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, when dealing with the sin of lust, which this young man was accused of, having this sexually immoral relationship with his father's wife. When Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And what does he say here? For the destruction of the flesh, that in the day of the Lord he may be saved. It's better you get rid of these things than to go into hell whole. I'd rather go into heaven blind and lame. And so... It was done in the hopes of his salvation, please note that, and his restoration. Now at this point we must remind ourselves quickly that whenever this church discipline is acted, it must be enacted within a certain attitude. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. 
So we must be careful that we do not do this out of pride. You do not do this out of anger. You do not do this out of vindictiveness or vengeance. Because we know all too well that we are susceptible to the same temptations as other men. And we do not want to fall prey to these things ourselves. And looking at the necessity, looking at the purpose, looking at the reason, looking at the method, we conclude this one formal thing. Church discipline is necessary under certain circumstances as the Bible instructs. It should not be avoided and abandoned, and it certainly should not be abused. But it must be exercised when those situations warrant it. And it's a responsibility of not only the elders, but you as our congregation, our beloved ones, to know what God has called us to do. That if the elders have ever in the future are called upon to, re- to act this out, you know why in advance. And hopefully, this will be something that you yourself will benefit from as it helps and almost requires us to once again rediscover and retain the idea that sin is serious before God. May I conclude with two passages this morning, and then we'll pray. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, I want to bring to your attention a wonderful possibility. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, he writes these words, that attest to the restoration of an individual. And many believe, but we don't know for sure, that the restoration of the individual was the one that was asked to leave the congregation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul instructs the church, it apparent maybe that the church then acted upon it, if not in that case, in another case. And now it appears that that individual has repented and must be restored to the congregation. And here's what Paul writes. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excess of sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I may test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Everyone who you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, I, what I have forgiven, if ha- I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan For we are not ignorant of his designs. And so the commentators believe that one has repented and now is required to be restored to the congregation. And here Paul is giving them that permission to do so. Again, re-emphasizing that the nature of church discipline is always, always restitution and reconciliation bringing the one back, the erring one back to a fruitful, healthy walk with Jesus Christ. In our last passage, I direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. 
I'll give you a moment to turn there because I really want you to read these words with us as a church to understand this from God's perspective. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17. Chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of your blood. And have, not, have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son in whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father, his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have an earthly father who disciplines us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it may many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Keep these words in your heart to know that it is a Father who loves you that may, when needed, discipline you. Because God loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. He wants to better you. And the form and the method in which he betters you is often done through discipline. Through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit, God often works to change the individual from the inside out. But there may come a time that the church is required to exercise church discipline. That being said, I want to inform the congregation that the reason that we feel that it is necessary to go over these points with you is that going forward in the uncertain times in which we live, we don't know what is going to occur and who is going to come in through these doors. And we are stating for the record before all that certain issues must be dealt with in a biblical manner if the situation 
arises. Does that make sense? If an individual came in causing issues, we would have to deal with that individual. If there are those who want to perpetuate a personal social agenda and feel that we are too staunch when it comes to confining marriage to a male and female, then we are establishing with the church that we understand God's role for us as elders and your role as laity to enforce what God has said is true. Does that make sense? Now we're all on the same page. 